Welcome to the Witch Game First interview with Jamie Stegmeyer of Stonemeyer Games. Our own Mike Rainier speaks to Jamie about his game design techniques, his epic game Scythe, his newest game My Little Scythe, and a lot more, including his very cool charity. All right, everybody, welcome to a Witch Game First interview. I'm here with the Stegosaurus, Jamie Stegmeyer. <laughs> <laughs> Figured I had to make it some kind of a expedition type thing so you're the stegosaurus sure. today <laughs> thank you for all right me. yeah oh man thanks for being on we just recently played scythe and we wanted to know what kind of mind a game like that came out of so tell us a bit about yourself um where are you from i grew up in uh, chesterfield virginia which is right near richmond virginia and then i uh i went to college at washington university here in st louis where i still am i studied abroad a little bit in japan and my whole life, I've I've loved board games, pl- both playing and designing board games. Yeah. So, what was your uh, your first memory of like a uh, a board game that had an impact on you that made you want to start designing? It's kind of a mix of a few of them, but a few of the earliest games that I played were Monopoly, as I think many kids play mm-hmm, as a kid, of course. Yep. But also games like chess, Labyrinth, Scotland Scotland Yard, Millbourne, and Risk all had early influences on me. Yeah. I loved Millborn. I played that when I was in summer camp. That's such a great game. Yeah. It's it's one of those games, too, that makes you think about what more could I do with this game? Yeah. So let's talk about Scythe. Since we just played that recently, people are saying your the cards look like little Picassos. Um, do you have a like an artist that you like to work with? Yeah, the Scythe art is a little bit different than other games that I've worked on because the artist, a guy named Jakub Rosalski, lives over in Poland. He had started to build this world. He calls it his 1920-plus world. It's an alternate history of Eastern Europe. He had had already started to build this world and had started sharing the art on social media when I discovered it and was just enamored by it and wanted to design a game in that world. So it was really kind of an art-first design, yeah. Yeah, I, I I haven't designed a game like that yet because I haven't, you know, I don't work with the artist until a lot longer afterwards. But that's really cool to see a world that you find that's so rich and then you want to just jump in and get people to experience it with you. That's very cool. Yeah, yeah. So he had a whole backstory for it and everything like that. And you kind of just like joined in with him and, and figured out how to make that into a game. Yeah, it, it was a very collaborative process where I there, there was a lot of discussions back and forth over email about mechanisms that I thought would be a good fit for the world and little things that I thought might be necessary for the the map, for example. For example, like in the original mm-hmm. world, there was no factory at the middle of the world. But I thought oh. that there needed to be a, a reason for players to move towards the middle of the board and interact with each other. So right. I, I would throw out ideas like that to Jakob. And sometimes he'd say, oh, yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, that, that, that fits with my world. And other times he'd say, no, that doesn't really fit. Let's find another way to do oh, that. Oh, that's cool. So we, we collaborated in that way throughout the process. So would you say that some of the ideas that you had actually gave him ideas of things to add into his world too and to his backstory? Yeah, I, I I think there's there's a lot of that and not even just for me, but also there were like little pieces of ideas that maybe started with him and that maybe a, a Scythe fan ran with. For example, the, uh, the second expansion, the Wind Gambit, Jakob had one illustration that had an airship in it in the original game or maybe one of the original promos and a fan loved that idea so much that they created a new unit type and made a fan made expansion that eventually became the wind gambit. And 
so that impacted Jakob as well. Like he he hadn't envisioned, I think, a world full of airships, but once he saw how cool they were, he was like, "Yeah, yeah let's make let's make a ton of them and put them throughout the world." Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I love it when the fans can actually contribute something like that. You know, they give mm-hmm. an idea, and then you're like, "Wow, it blows your mind" because you didn't really think of something like that yourself, and then all of a sudden you're running with their awesome idea. That's so cool. Yeah. So when I first saw Sai, that was at a. Um, uh, one of the big board game conventions. It might have been Gen Con, I think, when it first came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I saw people buying stacks of them, like multiple <laughs> copies of it. <laughs> so that's something you can really be proud of. Um, yeah. But now, I guess people loved it so much. You also are working or came out with a game called uh, My Little Scythe. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, that's another thing that started with a fan, a, a guy named Hobie and his daughter, Vienna. They uh, Vienna was around five years old at the time, and she was very curious about this game Scythe that her father was playing, but um, she wasn't quite ready to play it. And so together as kind of a father-daughter project, they designed My Little Scythe using very streamlined versions of the mechanisms in Scythe and originally set in the My Little Pony world. And <laughs> Oh, okay. I get it now. My Little Scythe, My Little Pony. My little, right. right, yeah. And it got so much traction. Like I heard about it and I thought, okay, that's cute. And I kind of like looked over it a little bit. And then, but it got so much traction. People were talking about it for weeks and weeks that eventually I was like, okay, maybe there's really something special here. And so I reached out to the designer, (laughs) ended up playing it myself. And I was just delighted by it. And I saw that it really was, even though it had its roots inside, it was also very much its own thing. So we decided to to make it and it's, it's done quite well, actually. Oh, that is really cool. Yeah, actually, uh, we got a copy from you and we're going to, probably play it on the show pretty soon i'm looking forward to it so that's really cool now it probably has a lot less choices to make each turn than uh, the regular scythe game and all that because that's a pretty deep game um it is more streamlined inside yeah. there are like four different actions that you can take on any given turn mm-hmm. in my right. little scythe there are three but they don't have bottom row equivalents so mm-hmm. it is it's much more streamlined but you'll see some similarities in it yeah i can't wait i'm really looking forward to it so I see here that you also uh, wrote a book, the Crowdfunders Strategy Guide in 2015, mm-hmm. and it's full of uh, – here's, a, I guess, a quote we got from it. Inspiring successes and sobering disasters. <laughs> 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 so were these like your sobering disasters and uh, inspiring successes or stories that you gathered from people? A combination of the two. This was oh, a book awesome. that I wrote I think back in 2015, maybe 2016. Mm-hmm, uh, yeah. No, it was, it was early. It was before Scythe. I think I wrote it in 2014, 2015. And it was um, – at the time I had ran I think seven Kickstarter campaigns. And for every campaign I ran, I did some cool things, but I also made a bunch of mistakes. And I think every <laughs> creator can can uh, relate to that. And so I have a lot oh, of stories yeah. about the mistakes that I've made, but also some cool things that other creators can do and some mistakes that they made that they uh, kind of own up to in interviews in the books with the intent of other creators learning from those mistakes and not having to make them themselves. Right. And also I'm, I'm guessing a bit of humor. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, what yeah. It, can you remember one of the, just a quick description of one of these sobering disasters out there? Well, one of the classic ones that actually ended up being, it was a disaster that turned into a success and then ended up turning into another disaster. Was oh, no. <laughs> one of the, the biggest projects ever on Kickstarter was called the, uh, the I think, the Coolest Cooler. And it was a, a fancy cooler that you would, you know, bring to like an outdoor party or something that had... Yeah, like a tailgate or something. Lights like on the inside and, yeah, like, and it had batteries in it and all, all this fancy stuff in the cooler. And they launched it in December of a year when 
no one was thinking about needing mm. to keep things cool because most people, yeah. you know, or many people, <laughs> you know, it's, it's cold in the winter. And so they failed in that project and they relaunched the next summer and raised like $12 million. It was one of the biggest projects ever. Oh, man. I guess timing is everything. Right, exactly. <laughs> it ended up, unfortunately, also being a bit of a failure in their delivery of it in the end. But at the time that I wrote the book, it was it was a big thing that looked very promising. It looked like it was going to yeah, work out. That's one of the tough things that's been happening a lot lately is uh, the execution. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm hoping yeah. – uh, the book probably talks a little bit about that too, how important the execution is for uh, – for for following up with all that money that people gave to you because they loved your project. Yeah. I talk about that in terms of like not quitting your day job the minute the project funds. Like sure you have <laughs> $400,000 in your bank account, but that's not your money until you actually right. deliver the product and then you have a little bit of leftover to either make more of the product or to go out to a nice dinner with, you know. It's that's <laughs> right. not your money yet. <laughs> <laughs> um I also see that there is a um, let's see oh the Stonemeyer Games annual charity auction starting in mm -hmm. it started in 2017. You want to tell me a little bit about that? I think it may have started. I think we've done like five or six of them. So it's we did oh. one in 2017, but I think it started maybe 2013, 2014. Oh, awesome! Um, yeah, it originated through two different things that came together. Basically, one, I, I hear from a lot of charities asking, can we donate a game to them mm -hmm. or, or donate money to them? And I, I appreciate that. I, I love supporting charities. But there were so many. I was like, how do I pick and choose? I can't pick all these. I need to pick some of them. And in the end, I didn't even feel comfortable really picking any over the other. And yeah. that combined with my desire to recognize media creators, content creators in the tabletop world who were – Either maybe p many people hadn't heard of them and I thought they were doing great things and I was just a fan of them and wanted to share them with other people. So I combined them okay. into this charity auction where every year I put uh, 10 of our most like in-demand products or 10 copies of our most in-demand products up for auction and I associate each one with a different media creator and they get to pick a charity. Oh. And so the latest iteration of this charity is that like last year we had these 10 creators. They each had a... Uh, an expensive game associated with them that, that was up for auction. People bid for the auction and the money went to that charity. And then we matched that money out of our own Stillmeyer Games Fund. So if uh, many of these auctions raised like $500. And so we ended up sending like $1,000 to that charity. Wow, that's so great. Trying to, I don't know, spread the, the goodwill and the success that we've had with other people that maybe are in more need of it. That's fantastic. Yeah, I know. Even as like we have one, my company has one game published and uh, we get a lot of like talk from people in schools mm -hmm. or like after right. school programs that want to have a couple games for the kids. And we love doing that, you know, just yeah. seeing other people get joy from the games you make is part of the reward for doing that. And the totally. fact that you're sending them a thousand bucks too to their charity is awesome. Yeah. Uh, have you gotten more people to join in on it and get notice of it or how's it going? Well, one of the great things I think about the board game world is there are p people who kind of come and go all the time. Mm -hmm. And so every year I've featured 10, not necessarily new content creators, but content creators that I haven't featured in the past. Mm -hmm. So th that's kind of what I've seen over the years. Like er early on, one of the ones that I that I had was uh, the Secret Cabal was on there when they were up and coming. <laughs> now they're huge. Mm -hmm. Like they wouldn't be on there now. But last year I had a number of smaller blogs and, and podcasts that, that I'm a fan of, but I don't think a lot of people have heard of and that the, we get to put a lot of focus on the charity auction. So a lot, a lot of people discovered them for the first time. Oh, that's beautiful. So you actually, it's not only helping the charities themselves, but also the designers and the, and the new like podcasters and stuff like that to get recognition. That's really awesome. Exactly. Yeah. 
on our show, we like to find out the origins and stuff like, you know, which is which came first, the chicken or the egg kind of joke with our name. Mm-hmm. Um, so we like to know where the games come from. Um, and of course, the designers all have different processes. So what kind of right. process do you use when you're designing a game? The first step for me is usually just a brainstorming process. Mm-hmm. And I know that's a bit of a generic, a generic answer, but I, it <laughs> really varies based on the game. Like I mentioned that Scythe was motivated by this world and this art that I discovered. Mm-hmm. Euphoria was motivated by a question that I had about worker placement that I hadn't seen in a worker placement game before. Viticulture okay. was motivated by my desire to have a to pick a theme that might appeal to non-gamers while having mechanisms that appeal to gamers and could be easily taught to non-gamers alike. Ah, uh, you're trying to trick them into being gamers. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of that. Yeah, a little bit. Yep, yep. And so it really depends on the game. But my, my one of my favorite parts of that design process is the very beginning where I just have a blank piece of paper and maybe a hint of an idea, whether it's a theme or a <laughs> mechanism, and just branching off from that. And if, if it's a theme, then finding mechanisms right away that connect with it and then asking, okay, do these mechanisms actually fit this theme? And kind of going back and forth between the theme and the mechanisms. I, I really enjoy that part of the process. And it can often take me a while. I, I can spend yeah. weeks just brainstorming to see where it goes. And uh-huh. what about you? Do you... Do you do you do that pencil and paper brainstorming or how, what? Oh yeah, totally. I, I first I get an idea in my head and mm-hmm. then I kind of go furious with the notebook for a little while. Mm-hmm. But I, I like to try to get to a prototype as soon as I can just to see how it feels in my hand. Yeah, uh, you know, if if because sometimes you have this great idea and you think it's going to be super fun and then you start toying around with the the components of the game and you're like, uh, this is pretty tedious or you're like wow this is awesome you know (laughs) right so you'd say that you basically start with the mechanics more or do you start with like the uh the theme first for me it's really it it depends on the game i I would say it's almost an even split at this point between you know i've I've designed and published what four or five games i have a few more coming out so it's it's almost an even split between them at this point and do you have like a a whole like dresser full of uh potential ideas or failed ideas that you still keep around oh yeah yeah yeah, uh, <laughs> I keep notes on uh, a list making app called Trello. And so I have like hundreds of these ideas for I, I actually have a theme column in Trello and then a, a mechanism column in Trello. <laughs> and so there, uh, it's fun to like look over them whenever I'm stuck. And I also have a t- mm-hmm. bunch of games, like you said, that you get to that first prototype and you play it and you're like, oh, this this isn't going to go anywhere. And I put that aside and maybe someday I'll return to it or it'll impact a future design. But I have lots of those that I just set aside. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's really handy, though, to have like a, a list of mechanisms and you're way more organized than I, I have to flip through actual paper. But uh, <laughs> to have a <laughs> – it's terrible. Like I'm moving soon and I'm going to have to throw away like a, a bunch of stuff and I don't know uh-huh. which I'm going to throw away. But like when you're looking for a, a great mechanism for a game, you're like, I remember I was making this game that was terrible, but right. one of those mechanisms is great and it will fit right into this theme. So it's nice to have a, a bank of stuff like that to draw from. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So Trello, huh? I got to look into that. Yeah, it's T-R-E-L-L-O. It's a free... Oh, Trello. Trello, Trello okay. yeah. A free list-making app that I, I just keep open in Chrome all the time. All right. So now that we've talked about some past games and some games that are already out, what is coming up next? Well, in the very near future, I'm not sure when this is going to air, so this might be in the past at this point, but... <laughs> all right. We have the, the final Scythe accessory, which is a modular board for Scythe, um, a board plus tiles that you put on the board uh, to create a large variety. I think someone calculated like 30 million different possible setups for... Yes, mass replayability. I love that. Exactly. Yeah. 
So that's the last kind of the we kind of ended actually the side the story back with the third expansion, the Rise of Fenris. But this is the final accessory that we've planned to put out for the game. That's really cool. And um, what about uh, any other? completely non-scythe related games that you're thinking about or you want to just keep that hush until it comes uh, closer to being born <laughs> well i'll say this <laughs> I, I i do keep things secret until i'm ready to announce them but last night i actually played the pre-production copy for mm -hmm. my next game for the first time which is always like a very it, I, don't, I don't know if if this is the case for you but that first play of the pre-production copy or the advanced copy is incredibly stressful for me because i just want so badly for it to all come together the way that I had it. Like, you know, I, I play tested tons of times, but it's different to actually, actually play with the real components. So it was, it was incredibly stressful, stressful. It, and it, but it went fine. And, and <laughs> it, we caught a few things, but nothing that will slow it down. So in a few months, we'll, I'll be talking about that a lot more. Good. So you didn't see some kind of game breaking mistake or infinite loop that will totally mess <laughs> your game up. <laughs> Fortunately, we caught, well, I think we caught all that stuff during playtesting. Um, we didn't definitely didn't come up last night. I'm sure in your playtesting group, you have somebody who's looking for those exploits. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We have a few in my local playtest group that do that do that. And then among my blind playtesters, there are some people that are really good at doing that, too. And even on the we always like I design the multiplayer aspect of our games and then I send it off to our solo designer, a guy named Morton. And he creates the uh, the automa, the solo versions of the game, and so they what they play they are great at doing that kind of stuff. They're because these solo gamers are all about breaking the game. It's tough to make a single player game, yeah. <laughs> it is, especially when you want it to feel like you're playing against kind of an intelligent opponent without dealing with the hassle of actually having to like manage all the stuff for another opponent. And Morton's really good at that. Yeah, and also like having a challenging AI that's not super predictable. You know, it's exactly it's just tough. But yeah. that's great. Uh, it's great to have somebody like that on the team. Yeah, yeah. All right. This has been super fun. Uh, anything, any closing words, any wisdom you want to leave anybody with here? Well, I, I just appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Scythe has been out for a while, so I don't always get to talk about it in podcasts like this. So I, I'm glad that we got the opportunity to, to chat about it. My favorite character is the the, the bear. Wojtek. Wojtek the bear. Yeah. He's based on a real bear. Was there a lot of history that went into a lot of the components of this, like uh, historical characters like that? Or is that like basically the only one? There were a few. Jakob was – he definitely wanted to tell his own story, and he did. But he is also – he lives in Poland. I think he's seen kind of the after effects of real wars that happened between Russia and Poland back in um, the 1920s. And so that was the how the story originated. So he's pulled a few things like Wojtek and a, a few of the characters I think were influenced by real world either events or people. Wow. That's, that's so awesome. Um, are we going to see you at any like local cons to us up in the Connecticut, New York area? You know, I have a friend moving to Connecticut in the very near future. He's going to work for the Coast Guard. So maybe someday I'll visit him and his wife up there and visit. I've heard that Con Con. Have you been to Con Con? Yeah, that's my first con I ever went to. Con Con. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a little it's a little one, but it's like a nice, like intimate one. I think those are the ones that I like. I like to just go to a convention and, and play games. And I don't get to do that very often. I, I went, attended one in St. Louis called Geekway to the West uh, last weekend. That's the one that I go to on a regular basis. But uh, I don't travel much. So hopefully someday I'll have a little bit more time in my schedule and I'll get to go to some of those smaller conventions and just play games with people around the world. So thanks for coming by, everybody. This has been a Which Game First interview of Jamie Stegmeier. Yeah, thanks for having me. Bye. Bye.